Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. And I had the opportunity to travel to D.C. a few weeks ago with these two gentlemen who are joining me today to meet with our legislators and talk about some issues that are impacting co-ops. And before we get into those issues, I just wanted to take a second to talk a little bit about the scope of the co-op's impact in the United States. There are 833 distribution co-ops, just like Cherryland. So we take electricity that's been delivered into a substation and distribute it throughout our service territory to homes and businesses. There are 62 generation and transmission cooperatives, like Wolverine, who is our power supplier. Wolverine uh, handles everything from purchasing power on our behalf to owning uh, power-producing assets on our, on our behalf and then obviously transmitting it to our substations. Uh, in the U.S., co-ops power 56% of the nation's landmass. They own 42% of the distribution electric lines, but they only serve 13% of the population. And that is one of the biggest challenges cooperatives have in keeping our rates affordable and then helping to be strong economic drivers in rural communities. We have a lot of infrastructure and we serve a relatively low number of people with that infrastructure. And that makes us very unique when we go to DC and talk about some of our issues. And so I wanted to lay that groundwork because you'll see that kind of come up as we talk through some of the things we discussed. But joining me today to discuss these topics are Tony Anderson, our general manager here at Cherryland. Hey, Tony. Good afternoon. And uh, Craig Bohr, who is the CEO of the Michigan Electric Cooperative Association. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. And Craig really does a lot to help represent our interests in both Lansing and D.C. So he'll be a, a tremendous resource for us as we talk through a few things, including uh, the 2018 Farm Bill, uh, the uh, getting adequate funding for low-income heating and energy assistance, uh, some different pension issues that we have, some tax extenders for renewables, lots of different things going on. Sometimes I think it's easy to think nothing's ever happening in D.C., but when you really step back from it, we do have a lot of issues we're paying close attention to. So before we dig into those issues, could, could one or both of you just weigh in a little bit about why it's important that we go to D.C.? So, Tony, why, why do we do this? For me, it's the consistency of message. They need to know that w what our message is, and they need to hear it over and over again. Because when they know you're not going to stop coming back, then they're a little more attentive every time you go. So it's consistency of message. If you want to get anything done in D.C., one, you have to be present. Two, you have to bring a little money. Uh, we try to focus a little more on the presence than the money, but we, we have a good amount of both as well. Awesome. And Craig? I think from my perspective, uh, it's really the breadth that our membership covers in terms of the breadth of the state of Michigan. It's easy for me to go there and, and say, hey, from a you know, Lansing perspective, let's talk about some of the issues that are important. It's much better for us to go there, as we did a few weeks ago with you and others, to bring a perspective from northern Michigan or from the Grand Traverse region. I think it's much more personal and much more effective to show sort of how we're tied together and how that message is is really reinforced, as Tony indicated, by uh, by the people back home and the people in the district, uh, mm -hmm. wh whomever that district uh, may, may be represented by. Yeah, and it's kind of a nice relationship because most of the time we have you or, or representatives from our national organization and our ECA out there working on our behalf, and we're back in the district reinforcing that message when we run into our legislators. But it's important to see for them to see us in D.C. and vice versa Absolutely. as well. And it's also an educational opportunity for us because we talk to so many staff, and the staff and all these congressional offices roll over. So we're, we need to constantly be there to educate them on what a co-op is and 
what we do. And uh, I think we do a good job of that by going to D.C. on a regular basis as well. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's dig in. The Kind of the biggest thing we're watching right now is probably the Farm Bill. In 2018, the Farm Bill is slated for reauthorization. A little historical context for our listeners. The Farm Bill was originally part of the New Deal. Uh, it was designed to help support the ag community and rural communities through that time. Um, it's changed a lot, but ultimately it's a kind of a comprehensive bill passed approximately every five years that deals with agriculture and all other and other affairs that fall under the purview of USDA. Uh, There are several very contentious aspects of the Farm Bill, particularly as they relate to nutrition. But when when we're talking about the Farm Bill and for the co-ops, our main uh, kind of our main concern is the uh, rural development and energy titles in the Farm Bill because those really impact what we do. one of those, Tony, maybe you can talk to it because you kind of have a history with the co-ops with it, is RUS Electric Loan Program. Can you talk through how the co-ops use RUS and why it matters? Yeah, the co-ops across the country use RUS to fund uh, poles and wires projects. We're, we constantly have to upgrade our line. We have to add new services to new customers. And a lot of that financing comes through the u- rural utility services. So it's a, a very big piece of the farm bill and very important to co-ops in 47 states. Yeah. So uh, another thing that came out a lot when we were in D.C. is broadband funding. Um, there, There is the opportunity for the farm bill to help that. And I know some of the Michigan co-ops are looking at broadband expansion. Do you want to talk through some of that, Craig? Sure, certainly. Uh, I think uh, broadband has been something that's really evolved from a rural perspective over the last several years, principally due to need in many rural areas that are either not served or, or underserved, perhaps. And I think rather than reinventing, so, uh, you know, how should we do this? What should be the lead agency? I think there's been general consensus, certainly in Congress, about, around USDA, and in this case, the Rural Utility Service, sort of taking the lead in both loan and grant programs for, uh, for rural broadband. It's sort of a natural home, and I think there's general consensus that hey, they do rural well, uh, be it rural water or other types of rural infrastructure. Broadband is probably a good home, uh, a good spot to, to put uh, with our U.S., and I think that's uh, going to be a significant part of the Farm Bill this year in terms of having a broadband title. And specifically looking for kind of ongoing funding as opposed to having to to beg for it every single year through Correct. appropriations, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um what what I don't remember the um, the amount. Did anybody have the amount we were asking for? I, I, two, I, two and a half. I thought it was two billion or two and a half billion. Okay, uh, right. is what we were trying to carve out of the farm bill just for specific broadband purposes. Okay. We got six hundred million in the the omnibus earlier in the year, but we're trying to up that so we can do more projects. Yeah, and there are several co-ops in Michigan for whom this is a really important. Um, they're like right now starting these kinds of right. projects, and so mm-hmm. it's it's an important yeah, tool I think, for them. I, have, I think it'll be even more important as we go forward in that uh, many of the co-ops that are already installing broadband have their financing lined up, and I think we're talking about prospectively 2019 and beyond, and that's the grant provisions in this particularly. It'll be a loan and grant combination I think could be really attractive. Again, we don't know all the details of what it may look like, for those that are considering it, like mm-hmm. a Presque Isle or Thumb or other uh, co-ops mm-hmm. here in Michigan that have 
not really embarked. So uh, very important uh, in terms of how this ends up and what Congress does with the Farm Bill. Yeah, there's about 900 co-ops in the country, and I think 100 of them have active fiber projects right now. So that leaves 800 as the, the market for doing more fiber, and certainly we need more funds to do that if we're going to be effective. One thing that kind of stood out to me is every legislator we met with seemed very much in support of figuring out how to expand broadband access in rural areas. I'm, I'm sure they probably don't all agree on how to do it, but but there was no one we met with who, who didn't think it was important, right? right? So, I mean, we do have support from our legislators in terms of the importance of doing this. Mm-hmm. I think it's clearly bipartisan in terms of the need, particularly in portions of Michigan and other states. Uh, some states are more you know, advanced in terms of broadband or fiber to the home than others. But clearly, as you indicated, Rachel, our Michigan members, I think, are universally supportive of these types of uh, initiatives in the Farm Bill. So the other piece that um, is, is in the Farm Bill, and, and certainly we, we've accessed it here at Cherryland, is certain economic development programs through USDA. So uh, one of those that we use is the Rural Economic Development Loan and Grant Program, or Red Leg. Um, do, you, do you want to talk through how we use Red Leg and how it's been impactful, not just at Cherryland, but for all co-ops? Yeah, it's an economic development incentive program that's used across the country. It's 10-year, 0% interest loans to uh, new businesses, uh, startup businesses, and even existing businesses who are expanding. Uh, We were involved about 20 years ago with a water project for Blair Township. That was our first one, and we've been revolving those funds since then. And we've supplemented it a couple times with a couple different fire trucks, so we now have uh, $1.2 million in revolving loans that are continue to come in and out. Yeah. And it's been a, a good pro- – the uh, very few defaults, if any, on uh, – not just at Cherryland. I mean, at Cherryland, mm-hmm. we haven't had any, but yeah. uh, uh, across the country, that's my understanding, right. is yeah. that it's been a really successful um, economic development yeah, program. Really, almost, mm-hmm. you know, nuts and bolts. They're not massive amounts of numbers, mm-hmm. uh, dollars that are available, but they're very meaningful, particularly for companies that are starting up and, yeah. and local community projects. I mean, it's sort of uh, right in our wheelhouse, if you will, yeah. in terms of how effective they can be at a local level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great, great program. Yeah, we, we've done a lot of loans at 50000 and 100000 That That's not big when it comes to a, a business, but when you think of that's $100,000 you don't have to pay interest on. Mm-hmm. So the, the cash flow uh, works very well, and we've partnered with a lot of banks where the bank gets a piece of the funding, we take a small piece, they improve their cash flow, and it, it's a win-win across the board. Yeah, it's been a really a good program for our community. Um, so I, I, we do have some people actually logging into our Facebook Live. So if you are watching us on Facebook Live and have any questions for our illustrious panel of experts, don't hesitate to ask. Um, otherwise, w- one more thing I want to – well, there's a couple more things I want to talk about with the Farm Bill. But, um, Craig, can you just – like, okay, the Farm Bill never gets done on time. There's all these contentious things that are going to hold up our things. Like, what, we're, realistically, where are we at with the Farm Bill? Well, what the, are you hearing? The Farm Bill, at least in the U.S. House of Representatives, has been voted out of committee. Uh, so it's been pushed to the floor. It's our understanding that it will be brought to the floor the week of May 7th and could potentially see a vote uh, that week, uh, obviously depending on if the votes are there. Uh, and from what we're hearing in the House, it will be a very, very close vote. Um, so the, the at least the House version of the Farm Bill could move very quickly here in the next two weeks. On the Senate side, we haven't seen a Farm Bill yet. And from what we're hearing, uh, it will likely be sometime after Memorial Day before we see anything from the Senate. Uh, the Senate Farm Bill will be much more uh, bipartisan. 
uh, as you might imagine, given the, the, the split, if you will, in the Senate and how close it is between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, and I think clearly uh, will not be as contentious uh, overall as it will be uh, in the House. The House, uh, um, obviously, from what we're hearing, we expect a vote May 7th, but I wouldn't be surprised or I wouldn't be surprised if that got pushed off because they simply didn't have the votes to, to pass it on the and floor. And why don't they have the votes? What, what is the sticking point of contention? Really, a number of the issues around uh, revolve around low-income programs, nutrition assistance. Those are many of the titles that are controversial, uh, particularly with some of the very conservative House Republicans. They don't feel that a effectively a welfare-like title should be in the Farm Bill, that it should be in some other form of uh, public assistance, if you will. And that's really the, the point uh, where many of the very conservative House Republicans have a hard time getting on board with the Farm Bill. Which is unfortunate because there is so there are so many things attached to this bill Correct. being held up by yep. one thing. Well, and that's one certainly um, um, crop insurance and some of the subsidies for certain commodities are, are in there. And depending on what part of the country you're, you're from, you may be for or against mm -hmm. some of those as well. So, those I think are the two areas where there isn't universal agreement. I think it's fair to say that the the pieces that we are really we are really interested in as electric co-ops, the rural development uh, titles, if you will are generally uh, universally liked by both Democrats and, and Republicans and are really not the contentious issues, which is good from our perspective. And there are, we haven't talked about it yet, but there are a few um, energy-specific programs in the Farm Bill that, that we care about that Wolverine has accessed in the past, right. REAP, right? REAP and RASP. Uh, REAP is a, effectively a, a, a grant program for principally aimed at renewable energy mm -hmm. uh, support and assistance. Uh, Wolverine, uh, through one of its uh, for-profit members, Spartan Renewable, did access that program for a half a million, million dollar uh, a grant to fund a solar project uh, in Misaki County. And we'll likely be looking at another application for another project like that down in the southwestern part of the state later this year. The REST program is not one that the co-ops in Michigan have uh, taken advantage of. Uh, it's really on-bill financing for energy efficiency improvements. I know in South Carolina, as an example, that's been a very effective program, but that's another uh, title that's in the Farm Bill uh, that uh, is important in many portions of the country. Um, so I want to transition to talk about uh, energy assistance, but before I do that, the thing that like is kind of amazing to me is we've now, I don't know how far we are into this podcast, we'll say 10 minutes, I forgot to check the time. Um, Everything we've talked about are things I think most people don't even really associate with the co-ops. Like they don't real. I think it's easy to miss how deeply involved we are with economic development issues in our communities and get just focused on what we do as it pertains specifically to energy. But so many of the things that we're going to DC and talking about or that we're concerned about in the farm bill are really about the economic, the, the greater economic health of our community, which right. is a, a cool thing right. about being a co-op. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I want to I want to transition a little now and talk about an issue that certainly is important to the co-ops in general. Uh, it's also an issue that we've been very passionate advocates about here at Cherryland, and that is low-income heating and energy assistance. The acronym is LIHEAP. That is a federally funded program. Uh, it, one of our concerns is that the funding was at about $5.1 billion back in 2009-2010, um, it has now been cut to $3.39 billion, and the some of the what we've seen is the president's budget calls for cutting it entirely. Uh, that 
concerns us, and not only because of the way it impacts our membership here at Cherryland, which we can talk through, but it's also important to know that the co-ops in general across the country serve 93% of the persistent poverty counties. So the, the, the co-ops represent a significant number of people who are dependent on LIHEAP to be able to, to keep the lights on. So do you want to talk a little bit through how people use LIHEAP or why, it, why it's important? Well, they use it to supplement their bill, and typically it's used in the wintertime when, when energy bills are the highest. And at Cherryland, it's used extensively in April because we don't disconnect during the winter season. Mm -hmm. So we need some energy assistance for these people who uh, come off mm -hmm. in April. So it's, it's very important. And, and yes, it's a welfare program. Some people will think, well... Maybe they can just go to work or we can have a work requirement. And, and simply some people can't work. Certainly there are people who abuse the system, but there's a good part of our society that does not. They just simply don't have the means or they're elderly. And Social Security doesn't pick up the difference. So they need some extra assistance to get them through the winter. And that's what uh, LIHEAP does. Mm -hmm. I think it, the other important point about LIHEAP, at least from the Michigan Congressional delegation standpoint, it's universally supported, both Democrats and Republicans. I think much of that has to do with the fact that obviously we're a big heating state, and mm -hmm. it's critically important during those winter months. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and I, um, I think it's easy to forget how, I mean, how many people live in a situation where a, a single four hundred dollar bill literally can be could could mean they can't stay in their home. Catastrophic. And and a, a program like this is designed to be there in those moments. The mm. the other piece that's interesting to me with LIHEAP is it it a significant amount of it goes to funding assistance, but it also has a weatherization component. So money is granted out to in a, in our case I don't know if this is how it is across the country, but our local community action agency, and then they can use that money to go into low-income, you know, their income-qualified homes and make upgrades to make the home more efficient. And so not, it's not just an assistance program that's paying your bill. It's an assistance program that is essentially making your bill more manageable long-term. Yeah. And what we see in our service territory is that the, the need for that kind of weatherization is much, much, much greater than the capacity for LIHEAP to fund it. Um, we just rolled out a low-income community solar program where we needed to find 50 low-income homes that had been weatherized using LIHEAP. And in order to find 50 low-income Cherryland homes that had been weatherized using LIHEAP, we had to go back five years because they can't do more than that at the funding levels they're at. And so mm -hmm. it, it's... It's not making an impact at right. the building envelope level mm -hmm. like it could. Yep. And, and we're losing a lot of energy out the building envelope. Absolutely. Sort of the inflexibility of the way some of these things work. I mean, yeah. Cherryland has identified the need. The problem is uh, oftentimes policymakers don't understand that same sort of mm -hmm. need and how those dollars could best be utilized locally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If we fixed more of the building envelopes, the, you know, weatherized homes, if we did more of that, their energy bills would go down and then, in turn, their their use of energy assistance would go down. Mm -hmm. You know, they have a four hundred dollar bill because they're leaking energy out their home. We we could cut that to three or two hundred dollars if we did more billing envelope work. And it's really an area where a lot of other, whether they're state mandated or they're funded or they're, however, a lot of other energy efficiency programs fail to take on the thing that LIHEAP weatherization actually will take on, mm -hmm. which is very low quality housing stock and doing whatever it takes to get that housing stock better. Yeah. As for, a, for a longer period of time. Yeah. 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 So investment. It's, 
it's it's a it's an important program. And um, when we were in D.C. meeting with our legislators, we were really focusing on asking them to at least maintain the level of funding where it's at, mm-hmm. to yeah, not I, cut it any lower. I don't think there's any chance that the program will be cut, as was called for in the president's budget. There's simply way too much support, not only in Michigan, but nationally on a bipartisan basis for for LIHEAP. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then that's that's good. So those of you listening at home, if you see if you talk to a legislator, make sure they know how important LIHEAP is. But it's also a great reason we need to get the farm bill done. You know, mm-hmm. there is no funding if the farm bill doesn't get done. Correct. Um, we didn't we didn't have a talk about this with our legislators, but since we have Craig here, I was going to ask him to talk a little bit about um, the the tax extenders and the omnibus yep. bill. Just kind of. Some, yeah, the, there were some important things in there. Yeah, for, the tax extenders, as you referred to, was really the, the, the big tax package that got done just before the Christmas holiday, I believe December 21. There were really two provisions in there that uh, we believe are important to electric co-ops. One is the uh, electric vehicle tax credit was extended, the $7,500 credit uh, for purchase of electric vehicles. Uh, that will begin to phase out as uh, the automakers sell 200000 electric vehicles on a sort of a, a, a brand-by-brand basis, if you will. But that was extended. We, we supported that, and we feel that's good, good policy. And then lastly, the production tax credit for wind uh, was extended there as well. Uh, that will reduce and phase out over time as well. But having that, we believe, is good for Michigan and hopefully good for additional development of renewables here in our state. Mm-hmm. Um, EV, I know you're a big fan of EVs. Tony. I am, I am. Chevy Bolt is a great car. They're going to start putting your face on the commercials yeah. for Chevy, yeah. endorsed by Tony Anderson. We had an interesting conversation earlier with a builder on our lines who has 12 homes that he has contracted to build this year, and eight of them, the, the people who hired him asked him to install charging um, infrastructure yep. for an electric vehicle. And three of those eight already have an electric car. Yeah. The other five are anticipating getting a, an electric vehicle. Yeah. And I, I just learned that today as well, as the same time you did, and I was shocked. Yeah. I it, was shocked. It's encouraging, but... It, and that's where it's in, where things like these uh, tax credits can be really impactful. With, with these kind of market transformation initiatives, you're just trying to get past that tipping point where then all of a sudden it, you've got enough volume, the price is driven down, more people are likely to be able to to access electric Correct. vehicles. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, one, the one other one, just so I don't forget, or we don't forget it, in the omnibus, uh, which was passed mm-hmm. in February, the effectively the bill that kept the government running until later this year, the geothermal tax credit is in there. And certainly I know uh, from Cherryland's perspective yeah. and our other members as well, yeah. that can be a very important initiative for members that are installing geothermal heating and cooling systems. Mm-hmm. Very cost-effective way to heat, heat and cool your home. That's a 30% federal tax credit. Mm-hmm. And we've had um, some big geothermal systems on our on our lines. Crystal, oh, Crystal Mountain, Crystal Mountain recently ge- yep. did a big geothermal project for their new ad- addition mm-hmm. at the end. And one of the cool things in doing that is it allowed Crystal to – because our power supply portfolio is – 56% carbon-free, and so they were transitioning off of uh, fossil fuels into that. It allowed them to really decrease their carbon footprint by transitioning to geothermal, which is really, mm-hmm. really cool. Plus, see a pretty significant tax benefit, which is great mm-hmm. for yep. that for them. Yeah. yeah. So lots of important uh, tax incentives for not just for the co-ops, but more, more specifically for our members and the right. people we serve as they look at 
new technologies yeah. or potentially yeah, switching. And, and certainly it's beneficial to all the people we serve, right? You know, some people out there might say, well, you got to have a lot of money to put in a geo. You got to have extra money to buy an EV. But if, if we get more electric sales, our rates stabilize or maybe even go down. And that helps the low income, the middle income, and the high income, you mm-hmm. know? So anytime we can sell more electricity, it's going to benefit everybody. Whether you can put that technology in your home or not, it, at the co-op, it'll, it'll benefit you. Well, and it has a, a um, clear environmental benefit because of because of what we do, we've done with our power supply. Absolutely. So when when we if we get you know a thousand people who are Cherryland members to transition away from a fossil fuel powered vehicle to an electric vehicle and then plug it in in their house or at their business that's served mm-hmm. by us, they're doing that with fifty six percent carbon free energy, which is really cool. And yep. perhaps they're doing it overnight at a time that's more constructive for both mm-hmm. Cherryland and yeah. its power supplier yep. as well. So uh, the takeaway is go buy yourself an EV. Yes. When does the tax credit go away? I need to know. I need to get in line for my Tesla. Once uh, each of the manufacturers hits 200,000 vehicles sold. Okay. Okay. Put in in my order for my Model 3. Yeah, we got a little ways to go there, but all the the car manufacturers are coming out with a wide range of different EVs, so those sales are going to spike in the next few years. Yep. So we only have a, a few more minutes left. So those of you who are watching live, if you've been thinking, I really want to ask a question and you've been holding off, jump in with it. Uh, but two other uh, just really quick things we talked about in, in D.C. that we should talk about. One is the um, uh, Federal Power Marketing Associations, right? PMA? Sure. Yep. Do you want to Power talk Marketing through? Association. Yeah, there's, nine, like I said before, there's 900 co-ops in, in the country. 600 of those co-ops get a portion of their power from... Uh, electricity generated by hydroelectric dams across the country. These are government projects that were funded and built decades ago uh, that operate at cost and sell power into the rural markets and help keep uh, rates down in rural areas that are far more rural than ours. So although we don't take advantage or aren't unable to take advantage of uh, power marketing hydroelectricity, 600 co-ops do, so we were there lobbying for that. And the president had proposed to sell those, and uh, we're totally against that. Mm-hmm. You know, they've worked well for decades. They provided at-cost power. Mm-hmm. If they're sold, the power could go up to market rates, and then rural America gets a hit. And yes. we obviously don't want to see that happen. Yeah. Correct. No, it's, it's a program that... We don't direct, directly benefit from here in Michigan, but many of our brothers and sisters throughout the country do benefit mm-hmm. from from the PMA program. And there's nothing more environmentally friendly than running water to generate electricity. Right. Mm-hmm. There's just not. It's yeah. 24-7, 365 power. Yeah, So, and we, we invested in that infrastructure. It's working well for us, and it's doing what we need it to do. Mm-hmm. Don't don't fix it if it's not broken. Yep. Uh, and then the other uh, thing we've... we've uh, this probably will maybe be more significant to our employees, but it should matter to our members. We talked a, about uh, changing the way the cooperatives are charged premiums for their pensions. So right now we pay a premium through the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation that is the same as what a single employer plan would pay. But we are a multiple employer plan. So like of the 900 co-ops, hundreds of them would have to go out of business before we wouldn't be able to 
to continue to take care of our pension. So our risk is much lower than a single employer plan, but we are paying the same premiums as a single employer plan. Mm -hmm. So we're just asking for a different rate structure. And what was the savings that that would mean for the co-ops? For the co-ops as a uh, nation, it's $30 million per year. For the Michigan co-ops, it would be 400000 per year. Yeah. That, that would just get returned right back right. into our yeah, bottom and, line and back to our membership. Yep, and the electric co-ops across the nation have never turned in a PBGC claim, to my knowledge, and I know Michigan has not. So we're just, why are we paying premiums if for insurance we're never going to use, but we're required to by federal government to pay those premiums? So we have to have legislation to get us out of that, save our men, members money and I mean, um, we're simply trying to say, look, at our risk should be aligned with what a premium, mm -hmm. if any, should be. Yep. We don't have really pose no no risk there at all. It's a no. logical So answer. why should we pay, you know, in yeah. this case, $400,000 a year for, for the electric cooperatives in Michigan? And, so. and our pension is 90% funded today. So we're, it's a very solid pension. It's not the 40 or 50% mm -hmm. you read about in the paper. Yeah. I, um, think, I think our very conservative nature serves us very well in this area. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we have a question. Okay. Uh, coming in from our Facebook live feed, the question is, uh, what would be, I, I kind of read between the lines, what would be the potential for a state mandate that electric utilities phase in high-speed fiber optic internet access? So a mandate requiring electric utilities to do that as an infrastructure or economic development initiative. Any reactions to that? I can tell you that I was part of a discussion where that was raised <laughs> uh, in the governor's office, actually. Uh, but I think the, the likelihood of some sort of mandate to do that is, is very, very low. Uh, one, it would be extremely expensive uh, to, to replicate that in many areas of the state that just have almost nothing in the way of, of population or, or people that could pay for that sort of service. Two, I just don't think that the, uh, the momentum would be there from a legislative standpoint to approve something like that. Yeah, and I would agree with that. And it's never, I've always lobbied for less mandates. So <laughs> We've heard that. If anybody's listened to me or read my columns, yeah, I would be against that. The market should prevail. You know, you need to trust the private market and even the co-ops that are getting into fiber to do a business plan, make a business case, and then do the project. For the state to come in and say, you must do it, I would have to ask the state, well, are you going to give me the money to do it? Let's all share the risk then. Yeah. But for, for me to build fiber on, on my electric distribution system to all 35,000 homes is $80 million. Yeah, that's a huge risk that I don't want to put on my it, membership. It, so it's a huge risk to have mandated via uh, state law. Yeah. Um, and I and I, I don't think I think this person may have just joined us. So I would also say that though does go back to the importance of us advocating for uh, funding via loan and grant sure. through the farm bill to help support the utilities who Absolutely. for whom that business case is there and they've done their due diligence to put together a business plan and, and, and are ready to build out. So mm -hmm. it, it, there, I think there are ways to get there that don't have to end in a mandate Correct. is a different way to say it. Uh, well, yay. Okay, so we got a question. <laughs> um, so uh, did you guys bring fun facts? I did. Okay, yes. good. So we're going to round this out with a quick round of uh, co-op fun facts. Tony, do you want to go first? Yeah, I tied mine into the, the lead... Red Leg Program, the Rural Economic Development Loan and Grant Program. Cherryland's revolving loan fund is $1.2 million. Over the last uh, 10, 15 years, we've revolved that three times. So we've, we've created $3 million in economic development in, in our region, and we currently have 21 outstanding loans 
and we've created over two, three hundred jobs with that program since its lifetime. So it's a cool program. Craig, what's your fun fact? Since 2010, Michigan's electric cooperatives have invested more than a billion dollars in our state in generation, transmission, and distribution cool. infrastructure. That's amazing. One billion. Amazing economic impact. So I actually went with a farm bill themed fun fact. The uh, most recent farm bill was from 2014. It was 357 pages long and represented 2% of the federal budget. So if you want to know why it's hard to get things done, it's because we have 357 pages to work out between now and the next farm bill. And I think the, the, the new current house farm bill is something along the lines of nearly 700 pages. So. Oh, even better. Oh, Efficient governing <laughs> more, more great reading. at work. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you both for, um, one, for going to D.C. And, and talking to our legislators about this, but also thank you for joining me to talk to our members about it. And uh, again, if you're listening to this uh, after the fact, if you're ever interested in tuning in to a live uh, edition of our podcast, check it out on Facebook and you can ask your questions. So thank you. Thank you.